Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Have you ever experienced a dark night of the soul? Uh, this is a phrase that comes from a 16th century poem by a, a guy named John of the Cross, a, a Spanish mystic, dark night of the soul. Over the centuries, it has come to refer to a time of great crisis in one's life. Uh, sometimes it might be brought on by some deep, great sorrow as the result of the loss of a loved one, a, a spouse, or a parent, or a child. In some cases, it comes on in um, kind of an example of existential dread where a person just becomes lost in the world, overcome with loneliness and purposelessness. For some, it comes during a, a crisis of faith, maybe a person brought up in the church and now that person is beginning to ask questions about whether he is a Christian or not or whether she really wants to live for God. And so, they're re-examining everything that they believed, and it's um, a highly pressured, distressful situation. It's sometimes called a dark night of the soul. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you've been there. Uh, if you haven't, you, you might one day. But here's what often happens when we enter into a dark night of the soul. Very often, our inclination is to pray. Almost everybody, even unbelievers, when they go through dark nights of the soul, will be inclined to pray, to call out to some transcendent being out there who might know and understand and care for you as you are going through this challenge. Well, in our text today, we are seeing our Lord Jesus enter into something that might be called a dark night of the soul for Him. And what we'll find here in this text is that He prays. His reaction to this dark night is to pray. And so what we're looking at is the great prayer of our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. One of the big differences between what Jesus is going through here in this passage and what we often go through is that when we go through a dark night of the soul, often it's in response to something that's already happened, some kind of a setback or sorrow or, or crisis. Here with Jesus, He is getting into a dark night of the soul in anticipation of something that's going to happen. It's something horrible. It's something dreadful. It's something that fills him with sorrow. And so he prays to his Father during this dark night. So we've been away from Mark for a couple of weeks. As uh, I've been away in Croatia with our short-term mission team, you'll be hearing more uh, about that here in the future. Um, but we're going to pick up where we left off last time in the book of Mark. You might remember we have been looking at Peter's denials of, uh, of even a knowledge of his Savior, but we also saw Jesus come in his grace and restored Peter to fellowship with him, and he also restored Peter to a place of leadership in the church. And so here we have Jesus and his disciples. They enter into this place called Gethsemane. Uh, it's often called uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. It is kind of a garden area, a garden of, of uh, olive groves. And I think it's kind of worth pointing out that uh, Jesus and the disciples are in a garden here. You might remember that there's another very important garden in the Bible story, right? <laughs> remember the Garden of Eden? And there was Adam. I don't know if he was in a dark night of the soul, but he was definitely tested. 
and he failed the test. Now here we have Jesus in a different kind of garden, and he's facing a different kind of test. And so let's see what happens. So if you're able to stand, please do so. As we consider Jesus in the garden, Mark 14, verse 32, it says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Holy Spirit, would you please come and give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear the wonderful things that are here in your inerrant, Spirit-filled Word. Help us today, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <coughs> okay, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, a great prayer. Much we can learn here about prayer. A lot we can learn about Jesus and all that He has done for us. That's kind of central, but along with that are a lot here that we can learn about prayer. And so that's kind of the focus I want to take here on Jesus and His dark night of the soul in the garden. The first thing I want you to see is that prayer can often be a struggle. So that's not probably telling you anything uh, new but hopefully it validates your own experience as you have attempted to be a prayerful person. We all know prayer can be a struggle. So let, let's see how this happens here. Verse 32 is where we begin with Jesus and His disciples arriving again in this place called uh, Gethsemane, apparently a place that they had gone with some frequency together. And Jesus says to His disciples, sit here while I pray. And then in verse 33, we see that He takes with Him Peter, James, and John. So, Peter, James, and John were kind of in Jesus' inner circle. He had his 12 disciples, but then he had these three that uh, he had kind of a special relationship with. For instance, these are the three he took with him on the mountain during the transfiguration. He chose these three, and now he chooses to take these three with him a little deeper into the garden. And we see here in these early verses, this dark night of the soul begins to develop for Jesus. Verse 33 says he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. The, these, these words here in the Greek, sorrowful and uh, distressed and, and, and troubled, these, these are words that, that uh, can also be translated as a shock and, 
and horror and being stretched to the absolute limit. That's what Jesus is experiencing here. You might know in other gospel accounts it says that He sheds tears that seem like blood. I mean, there is something highly unusual going on here, and Jesus is responding with the full measure of His emotions. One thing we are getting a glimpse into here is the emotional life of our Lord Jesus. We know He's God in the flesh, but sometimes we emphasize the divinity at the expense of His humanity. He was a real man who had real emotions. He was an emotional man. He was not stoic and emotionally flatlined or detached, a man who felt deeply, a man with sincere emotions that are being poured out for us to notice in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, one thing that would really help Jesus at this time would be some assistance from His disciples. Uh, it would be great if they would pray with Him and pray for Him. And in fact, in verse 38, He does instruct them, watch and pray. But what we find is that the disciples just can't do it. It's just a struggle for them. They, they cannot pray. What happens is they keep falling asleep. And it's just kind of an embarrassing display of humanity here, their Savior in His place of deepest need. But verse 37, Jesus comes and He finds them sleeping. We see He goes away to pray a little more. And verse 40 says He comes back again and He finds them sleeping. He goes away, prays some more. Verse 41 comes back a third time and He finds them sleeping sleeping. It's interesting in verse 37 when Jesus speaks to Peter, He doesn't call him Peter, He calls him Simon. You might remember that's His given name. Jesus changed it to Peter. Peter means rock. It's almost like Jesus is saying, I can't call you Peter right now. Jesus is saying to Peter, I can't call you Peter right now, Peter, because you're not acting much like a rock. You're acting like Simon. Simon who can't stay awake to pray. You know, there are a lot of things that make it hard to pray, a lot of things that make it a struggle. We <clears throat> have very busy schedules. Uh, sometimes we question whether it's really going to do any good. Uh, we're very easily distracted. Our phones are always nearby calling for our attention. There's the issue of spiritual warfare. If there's one thing Satan doesn't want is he doesn't want us on our knees. Spiritual warfare is always a battle when it comes to prayer. But one thing that is hard for us to pray, one thing that makes it hard for us to pray, is just the frailty of our humanity. We get tired. We have a limit to how much we can do. The weakness of our flesh keeps us from praying as much as we would like. And I love this description in verse 40 um, that Mark says their, their eyes were heavy. <laughs> you, you know what that feels right like, right? You know, your eyes. And so, uh, we've talked often during our Croatia trip about how tired we were, particularly when we got to Croatia, the 13 of us, we were up for 24 plus hours, and we got to Zagreb, and um, <clears throat> we were there to visit Corey Schumacher, um, a missionary that we support. And so, Corey took us to the Focus headquarters and brought us in. It's evening time, and he sits us down in these comfortable, cushy couches. <laughs> And we're all sitting in this comfortable um, furniture, and uh, Corey starts to kind of give us some orientation. Corey might be watching right now, by the way, so uh, hello, Corey, if you're watching. Um, 
But, uh, boy, I remember sitting on that couch just feeling exactly like what verse 40 says here. My eyes were heavy, (laughs) and they were just closing shut, and many of the others in the group shared that that same kind of feeling. It's just we, we can only do so much as human beings. There's a limit to the strength and stamina that we have, and it was very similar for the disciples here. Uh, According to many timelines, we think they were probably arriving in the Garden of Gethsemane about midnight. It's late at night right now, and it's been a long day, and they just had a big Lord's Supper. They just had a meal. Their stomachs are full. It's been a stressful day, too. I mean, the Jewish authorities are coming after their Savior. They're probably wondering if they're coming after us, too. They're exhausted. They're tired. And now Jesus is asking them to pray. And so, I just love the way Jesus sums it up here in verse 38. It doesn't seem like Jesus is very happy about them falling asleep. That's true. But look in verse 38 when he says, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I just see that as Jesus' acknowledgement of the weakness of humanity, the frailty of our humanness. It's like Jesus is saying, I know the spirit in you wants to do right, but your flesh is weak. There's some debate here about the Spirit, whether it's a human spirit or whether it's the the Holy Spirit. I kind of lean toward Holy Spirit here just because human spirit doesn't naturally have a desire to pray. So what Jesus is saying is that the Spirit in you wants to pray, but there's the fleshliness in you that is in conflict and driving you away from that. And this is just a description, friends, of what it's like to be a Christian. We're just always in conflict. Your soul is a battleground between the Spirit and the flesh every single day. I think there are some Christians who notice this struggle, this conflict inside, and they think it means that there's something wrong with them. They think, you know, if I were a really mature, healthy Christian, I wouldn't have to struggle this way. That's not true. The struggle is a good sign. The struggle that you go through means the Holy Spirit is in you battling against your flesh. This is normal. For Christians. In fact, if there is no struggle in you, that's the thing you ought to be concerned about. If there's no struggle in you, maybe it's because the Holy Spirit doesn't live in you. I mean, here's what Paul says, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And so Jesus just acknowledges this weakness, and He knows our weakness as well. He knows that we are but flesh. And so there's just an affirmation of this that hopefully will make you feel maybe a little less guilty for the times that you fell asleep (laughs) while praying. happens. There's weakness in us. I love how James Packer says it too. Any idea of getting beyond conflict, outwardly or inwardly, in our pursuit of holiness in this world, is an escapist dream that can only have disillusioning effects on us as waking experience daily disproves it. Any real holiness in us will be under hostile fire all the time, just as our Lord's was. So don't be discouraged by struggle. Don't give up on the struggle. You still need to watch and pray. That's what Jesus uh, commands them to do in verse 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is not an excuse to just Give up in the struggle. Continue the struggle, but know that the struggle is normal and Jesus understands. Second thing, prayer is sometimes met with silence. 
prayer is sometimes met with silence. So we've looked at the disciples' struggle with prayer, but really the most important prayer here is Jesus' prayer. Verse 35, again, we see that He leaves the three behind, and uh, we notice that He falls to the ground. I mean, maybe weak knees, He's so overwhelmed that he, that he falls down, and He asks God, oh, please let this hour pass. Verse 36, take this cup from me. Now, this is a really peculiar prayer, isn't it? And it has raised a lot of questions for a lot of people. Here we have the Savior, Lord Jesus, calling on His Father to um, perhaps allow Him not to do the thing that He was sent to do. And so some people raise this question, is Jesus sinning here? I mean, is, is there a a resistance in His heart to do the will of the Father? Is that what's happening here? I mean, that would be dreadful, wouldn't it? If that were the case, we would not have a qualified Savior. We know the Scripture tells us that Jesus is sinless, so that can't be happening, but what, what's going on here? And I think the answer to that question is, is found in verse 36 with this very famous phrase at the end of verse 36. Jesus says, yet not what I will, but what you will. So there is Jesus saying, you know, my will needs to always be secondary to your will. It always needs to be submissive to your will, Father. So there is that, um, there, there is that, that humility there in Jesus' attitude here, which tells me that He is not resisting the will of the Father, but He is raising a question. He is raising a question. Given what He is about to face, His question is this to the Father, is there any other way that this can be done? Is there any other options here besides me going to the cross? Like, can't we just trust people to do the best they can? Won't that be enough? Can't we just um, rely on science and technology and just the goodness of humanity? Can't we just rely that, you know, people have sincere motives and deep down they're basically good and what, what what's right? I mean, is, is there another religion out there, maybe? that people could follow, and that they could be reconciled to their Creator. Is there any other way to do this? That, that's His question. It's a, it's a legitimate question. And the answer that He gets is no. There's no other way. That's why we say that Jesus is the only way to the Father. That's why, why we say you can't get to heaven through your good works. You can't get to heaven through your religious devotion or your morality. You can't do it because if you could do it, what's the use of Jesus dying on a cross? Why would He go through this if there was another way? There is no other way. That, that's the answer to the question. But we might also ask here, <clears throat> a question that many have asked, is why is it that Jesus seems to be so overwhelmed? Is he being cowardly? I mean, after all, we know many examples of people who face death with confidence and great composure, with no fear whatsoever, even defiance. People have laid their heads down on the guillotine and had them chopped off with apparently no fear at all. We've seen examples of that kind of thing. And here we have Jesus, though, distressed and troubled, and he can't even stand up, falls down on the ground. What's going on? What's happening here, friends, is we have to understand is that the death that Jesus is about to die is no ordinary death. 
It is a death unlike any death that came before him, unlike any death that has come after. Totally unique because of what was taking place at that cross. And we see it in verse 36. What Jesus asked for is, let this cup pass from me. Remove this cup from me. Do you know what the cup means? The cup has Old Testament significance. It represents the wrath and anger of God against sin. And we see it in at least two places here, Jeremiah 25. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. The cup of wrath also here in Isaiah 51, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. The death that Jesus is about to die is a death in which He will be identified with every act of malice and deceit and violence and lust and cowardice and idolatry and evil and wickedness in the world. That's what he's about to take upon himself. To drink this cup is to be crushed for iniquities that he didn't commit. It's to carry your sorrows and my sorrows. It's to be forsaken by his Father, to look to him and see the Father turn away. That's what he's anticipating. That's what he knows is going to happen. We can understand, can't we, why Jesus would say, is there another way? The answer again that he receives is silence. The Father is silent. The Father says no, that there is no other way. It's, it's unanswered prayer. What Jesus is experiencing here is unanswered prayer. And that speaks to something that we have all dealt with, right? You know what it's like to pray for something and not get it. I think we can all point to an example of something we long for, we ask God for it, and God was silent. And maybe you asked yourself at that time, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's kind of what it feels like, right? I remember a few summers ago, some of you know this story, we had our, our dog and we let our dog in the care of somebody else and the dog got out and we loved our dog and the dog was gone for two or three days and so we wanted to recover our dog. And, you know, I remember praying, oh, Lord, please deliver our dog back into our hands. And I remember thinking, this would be great, Lord, if you did this. Think of the great story I would have to tell. could tell people about how you heard me, and miraculously, you helped us find our dog. This is the God who answers prayer, everybody. I could come up here on Sunday morning and use it as a sermon illustration. But the answer was no. God did deliver my dog into my hands, but not alive. And so, unanswered prayer is painful, isn't it? You, you have more painful stories than that to tell. Some of you have prayed for a spouse. Some of you have prayed for healing. Some of you have prayed for your dream job. Some of you have prayed for reconciliation with loved ones and your family or friends. And the answer is silence. And perhaps you've thought, again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, why does God not answer our prayers? I mean, well, this is a whole sermon on its own, but, you know, some things we should remember about prayer. Prayer is not magic. It's not waving a magic wand to get what we want. 
God is not obligated to give us everything we ask for any more than parents are obligated to give their children everything that they ask for. I mean, think if God did give you everything you asked for. Think of the mess you'd be in. I mean, you'd question the wisdom of God, wouldn't you? Do you ever see these parents that give their kids everything they want, and you think that is an unwise parent? Well, why would God then give us everything that we ask for and everything that we want? He knows better than we do. And let's not forget, friends, God does answer prayer. Even though there are times He hasn't, think of all the times that He has. Think of the prayers we offered up for Micah Immel, the miracle baby. God heard those prayers, and He answered them. God does answer prayer, but not, not always. Sometimes He wants to teach us something. Sometimes He wants to show us something great. Sometimes He just wants us to trust Him in the uncertainty. But one thing you can always know because of what we're reading here about this prayer is that Jesus has been there. Jesus knows what it's like to have the Father say no. And this was something He pleaded for as best as He could, and the answer was no. So when you're in your darkest hour pleading with God, Jesus is there with you. He's been in that dark place, and and He knows what it's like. So one other thing to consider is that prayer finally, in the end, must always involve submission. Prayer must always involve submission. Jesus has His answer. It's no. Can the cup be removed? No. So the question is, how is Jesus going to respond to this? Is He going to shake His fist at God and say, well, if you don't give me what we want, I'm not your Savior? No. What Jesus does is He submits He submits to His Father's will, and He expresses that submission in that phrase in verse 36, again, not what I will, but what you will. My will is not primary here, Father. It's your will, which should be a model for all of our prayers. Not my will, but your will. But He also expresses His submission, not just in the prayer, but in His actions as well. If we look to the end of the passage, verse 41, He finds them sleeping again, and He says, it it is enough. You know, it's like I've had… I've not had enough in terms of frustration. It's just I, I have what I know. I have what I need. I know what I need to know. It's enough. Uh, the hour has come. I asked for the hour to be passed. No, the, uh, this is the hour. I realize that. The Son of Man is now betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Let's get going. Time for me to go to the cross. He submits to the Father's will. This right here is the zenith, the height of Jesus' righteous obedience. Even though His immediate desire was to be spared, His ultimate desire actually was to spare you and me, to submit to the Father, to spare you from the anger and wrath of God that we deserve, His judgment his anger against our sin, his temptation to serve himself was put aside so that he could serve his Father and do exactly what the Father sent him to do, which was to pay for sins, to redeem a people, to justify the unjust, and to rescue rebels for his glory. And he said, I'm going to do it in submission to the Father. Knowing this great grace, this, this is just the gospel here, what I'm telling you right now, knowing the goodness and grace and love of God in this gospel forces us, I think, to ask this question in our own prayers. In anything that you're praying for, what do I really want? Do I want my will or do I want God's will? 
Which is it? Sometimes they're not going to be the same. But in anything that you're praying for now and you're pleading with God for now, I just ask you to ask yourself, what do I really want here, my will or God's will? Do I really think my will is better than God's will? Can I trust that God's will is better than my will? J.C. Ryle says it like this, to take patiently whatever God sends, to like nothing but what God likes, to wish nothing but what God approves, to prefer pain if it pleases God to send it, to forego ease if God does not think fit to bestow it, to lie passive under God's hand and know no will but His. This is the highest standard at which we can aim. That's, that's the highest point of holiness right there. I'm taking what God wants, even though it's not what I want. So, the best news here, friends, that we get from the Garden of Gethsemane is that the Father said no to the Son so that He could say yes to you. So that in your dark night of the soul, or even if you're not in a dark night of the soul, but you just know that you need relationship with God, you need something different in your life, that you have got to turn from your own self-will, you come to realize you need to be forgiven of your sins, you need to be reconciled to your Creator, you, you, you need pardon, you need acceptance, you need life everlasting, you need the Holy Spirit in you. You come to that place... The Father said no to Jesus so that when you offer up a prayer to God and say, oh Lord, I am so sorry for my sins, would you please save me? Would you please forgive me and take me to your kingdom? He will always say yes when you offer that prayer. So if you haven't done that, go to Him with that prayer and give thanks that there was an unanswered prayer that will result in an answered prayer for you. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Jesus, for all that You endured for us the suffering, the trouble, the distress, the pain, that you did that to relieve us of what we fear the most, which is the rejection of our Savior and our God. Thank you so much, Lord. We don't have to fear that. There is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. We're so grateful for your obedience, Lord Jesus, on our behalf. In your name we pray. Amen.